everyone, welcome to The Eight. We are wrapping up a long six-part series titled The Author of Life. But I first want to share something about, I, I find it extremely fascinating. I talk about it a lot because I love learning about conversion stories and deconversion stories. A little bit, I have more of an interest for deconversion stories, just knowing the culture of America, of just why people, how do they get to a point of they're like, yeah, I, I don't think Christianity's for me, or I think, you know, I, I, that worked for me when I was a kid, but the older I got, I, I can just be a good person. You know, I don't need to be embedded into church and the whole Jesus thing. And I, and I always like hearing their stories. And when, whenever you hear their stories on podcasts and things like that, there's always a common theme. It's always life events that trigger their conversation. It's always life events that trigger a conversation. It's life events would make them start analyzing things of like, you know what, I, I, I don't think this is for me. It's how they respond to, the, to those life events that make him begin to drift. Two overall themes for deconversion stories, post-Christians, whatever you want to say, for those who are maybe kind of one foot in, and it's totally fine if you're one foot into Christianity, one foot out, I totally get it, and you're at the right place. But for those who say, you know what, I'm completely done. There's no need to entertain the conversation anymore. I, I'm a better person because I'm not a follower of Christ. So forth and so on. I, I'm sure you've heard those stories from family, friends, coworkers, so forth and so on. But something is very common between the, those the, the, the stories. One of the one narrative which is very common is, I moved away from Jesus because I want to do what I want to do, and I always felt guilty of when I was doing something which I know doesn't follow the ethic of Christ. And I hated that tension. I felt a little bit guilty. I felt a little bit shameful. And I felt less about myself. So to remove that tension, what's the best way to do? Just throw away Jesus. But that way, I can just be a good person. I'm going to deconstruct my faith and just be a good person. And I don't need to have anything to do with Jesus. That way, I remove the tension altogether. I can be a good person. I have a good heart. I'm going to do me. And I can still do what I want to do. That way, I, I'm, I'm just being me. I, I don't feel guilty. I don't have to embrace that tension anymore. Another thing of what causes a lot of deconversion stories is a classic question you and I have heard, and it's okay for us to, em to embrace the tension of this question. If God is so good, then fill in the blank. If God is so good, why is your childhood a cancer? If God is so good, why did he allow this to happen to my family? If God is so good, why did he allow this, I got that phone call about that diagnosis. If God is so good, so forth and so on. You fill in the blank. If God is so good, why is there pain and suffering in the world? It's a great question. It's a great question. And this is the driving question of what I would love for us to talk about this morning. But it's always interesting. Like, like I, 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 obviously, you can get like a whole seminary degree on this question. So I don't want us to, to lose, uh, I don't want us to go off tangent. But what's embedded in the respect that the author of life has for humanity, what's a common element that the, that, that the author of life has respect for you and me is free will. Is, I mean, that's respect, right? Respect it, it Embedded in respect is free will. And actually, that's the divine essence of love is honor and respect. Is you can do as, as you wish. Here's the path to life. Here's the path to darkness. You get to choose. But out of my love and respect for you, I'm going to give you the free will to choose. I hate to see you not make the right decision, but I have to honor and respect you. But going back to the question, if God is so good, why is there pain and suffering in the world? If God is so good, why is there pain and suffering in the world? If you notice, anytime you might hear that, that conversation around that question, I always find it fascinating that they put the focus on 
If God is so good, if there is a God, and if he is so good that, as what Christianity claims, why, uh, why, is there, why, you know, why is there poor people in, in place XYZ? Why is there childhood cancer? They point out pain and so many other circumstances outside of themselves. I want to ask the question when I have those conversations, isn't there a tension, like, if we be real and we kind of just put down our ego for a second? Aren't you and I both in pain to some degree about something? Aren't we yearning for something? Like, l l we can point out all day why there's pain and suffering here, pain and suffering here, pain. Uh, there's no end. It would just turn on the news. Why is there pain and suffering and so forth and so on? Why? Th there's no end. But now flip it back on you and me. If we're real, there is pain and suffering within you and me to some degree. Maybe we wouldn't use that verbiage. But there's a void within us. I would encourage you, if this question really, you know, comes through your mind a lot, if God is so good, why does X, Y, Z happen? If that question happens, uh, comes to you a lot, embrace it. And I challenge you, ask someone who has gone through hardship and they still are embedded and anchored in Christ. Have a conversation with someone who has gone through hardships, serious hardship, and they're still rooted in Christ. Have a conversation with them. Ask them, what keeps you grounded in Christ? Why didn't you just push that aside when things got bad? I, if you don't know somebody, please, well, I'll give you a list of a couple of people. But I, I, I'm sure you know somebody who has anchored themselves in Christ in the midst of hardship. Ask them questions. Tell them, out of respect, if you don't mind, I just want to sit with you and ask you a few questions. What has kept you rooted when this has occurred, when you got that phone call, when things began to unfold, when you weren't able to get that job, so forth and so on? Ask that question, ask those questions to someone. This is why. Like for me, what helps me so much with this question for me personally is this is why I love looking at the early followers of Jesus. None of them were just born and raised as Christians and that was it. They were skeptics. They came with their hesitations, with their questions, and they went all in to Jesus. And we do not have to look any further than our patron saint here at St. Mark Church. How did this young man, how did this man go from like a young man kind of seeing Jesus from afar, kind of like coming with his questions, how did he go from there to saying yes to God by bringing the good news to Egypt to the point that he is, is, is being dragged on the streets to death in the city of Alexandria? Like, you want to, like, ask him 21 questions. How did you go from a skeptic to being all in, not just all in, all in to the point of death? Like, all in to leave your culture as a Libyan man. You leave your culture and language and heritage to go bring the reality of who Jesus is to a foreign, pharaonic country of Egypt, even to the point of death. Like, what can be running through your, your blood to the point that you would do that? Me personally, I don't agree with people who say, like, you know, I, I don't believe in the God who allows pain and suffering. Why I'm not the biggest fan of that statement is because it's not the full picture. Just as we say orthodoxy is the fullness of the faith, that statement is not the fullness of the theology. Yes, I don't believe in a God who allows pain and suffering. That's incomplete. But I believe I want to pursue a God who uses pain and suffering for a bigger cause. I want to pursue 
the author of life who uses pain and suffering for a bigger reason, maybe a reason which I do not understand. Do not look any further than the God-man, the person of God, when the, when the author of life put on skin. Why did the worst thing possible, possibly happen to the best person? Why did the worst thing, why would God allow to his son, why would God allow the worst thing happen to the best person? Because the story is still being written. It is for our edification. It is for us to gain the fullness of life. So this um, formula of why God uses pain and suffering for a better cause, we do not have to look any further than the second person of God, Jesus, to see how that's even true. You and I do not want to believe in a God that allows pain and suffering. But you and I want to ask God, when pain and suffering happens, how does this bring edification? How does this bring life to me? You guys familiar with the author C.S. Lewis? You've heard of him? This is one of my favorite quotes. So I showed it before at the aid, but I love it so much. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. One of my first questions I want to ask God when, I, when my time comes, why? Couldn't you use any other formula? Like why, why you want to stick with this? Why do you whisper in our pleasures, speak in our conscience, but then you shout in our pain? Why do you use my pain as a megaphone when I am deaf? Why does God use pain as a megaphone when I am deaf? This is his formula that he has used from the beginning of time. But you and I get this. If you and I, uh, if, as we go through the hardships of this temporal world, you and I get this. When things are going well, and if things are going well for you, great. But just look at your clock in just a matter of time until the, the pain comes. But we get this. When things are going well, there's no need to come to church. There's no need to spend some quiet time with God. I don't need to, like, there's no, the, the motivation is lacking. But he eventually speaks on our conscience. But he eventually shouts in our pain. For us, faith is not a button where we press. I have faith in God. I do not have faith anymore. I believe in Jesus. I do not believe in Jesus. It's not a button. It's not just a statement. It's not just a creed. It is something that you and I live out. We prayed this today in the Divine Liturgy. These words were said in the year 380 by a man named St. Gregory the Theologian. We, he prayed this, and this is our prayer 20 centuries later. May the righteousness of faith grow. We want, we want the ethic of what is what, to put our trust in the author of life. But not just say, I have faith, I have trust. No, we want it to grow. Circumstances are going to shift us and pull and throw us off balance. But what we're talking about are five essential ingredients that allow us, or catalysts that allow us to make sure that our trust, our faith, our identity is anchored into something so much bigger than ourselves and is not shaken when the next hardship or circumstance comes our way. We want the righteousness of faith to grow. This is the question. For six weeks, and by the way, if you have missed any weeks, I encourage you to check it out on the church podcast or the YouTube channel. Everything's been rotating around this question. What facilitates the development of active, enduring faith? You want to put your trust in something bigger than yourself, someone bigger than yourself, right? When hardship comes, it's easy for our trust to go. But here's the million-dollar question. What facilitates 
the development of active, enduring faith. What allowed St. Mark, the early skeptics who ended up being all into Jesus, what allowed them to build this huge muscle of active, enduring faith? What allows you to grow an enduring faith that becomes applicable tomorrow morning at work? How do you endure the faith when, when, when moms and dads, you're stressed about what's going to happen to your kid this week or next week when it comes to school? How, how, do you, how do you build an enduring faith to put your trust not into circumstances, not into the teacher or your classmates. Of your, how do you put, how do you build an active, enduring faith which transcends any of those circumstances? We've been looking at five catalysts. Week one, which seems like a really long time ago, we talked about the catalyst to hear and to act. You and I can hear this sermon. Hopefully you're hearing the sermon. You can hear the gospel. You can attend and be engaged in liturgical service. You can hear. But to act on it is a different thing. I can say, I believe I need to eat better. I believe I can fly. I believe whatever. But to believe it is one thing. But to act on it is a completely different thing. You get this in every sense of life. But somehow when it comes to our pursuit of God, we feel I can just come to here and just take communion and then just call it a day. But what allows us to grow an active, enduring trust in the author of life is for me not only to hear but to act. And this is coming from the litany of the gospel in ancient liturgical prayer. The second catalyst is when we put our trust in him in action by serving, by pushing unconditional love of me giving of myself. When I serve into some capacity, this is where I build the muscle. I, I've said this before. You and I are here because somebody said yes to serving. You and I are here because someone said yes to serving and left an impact on you. You do not know what lies, what's, what's at the cusp of, of a change for you saying yes to service. You do not what impact you're going to make for the next generation or for the next person. Somebody said yes to this, and that's why you're here. What will happen if you say yes, the impact you might have for others? And the third category we talked about was edifying friendships. Our friendships, there's no other factor that determines who you will be besides your marriage, which is also part of your, your social health, is, is edifying friendships. Edifying friendships is one of the biggest catalysts to determine the trajectory of where your life will go. But if we invest in healthy, edifying, godly friendships, this is where we will find growth. And then last week, it was definitely given a funny name, which is a personal canon. And I won't spoil it for you. You can check out last week's talk if you have no idea what I'm talking about. But in a nutshell... It is your quiet time with God tomorrow morning. It's your time in silence, in stillness. And I'm going to say this, and I'm not going to look at anybody so you don't feel like I'm judging you. Why so many of us find the liturgy so long and boring? Lord have mercy again. When is this over? Is it time to kneel? Do you know why? We have not built this muscle of stillness, of quietness. If we're honest with ourselves, sorry, I'm going to close my eyes. <laughs> if, we, if we're honest with ourselves, we, we, like, we, we tried to be still. Four seconds later, we're doing that. It's hard for us to build this muscle. But if you want to find clarity and success and see the author of life working in every aspect of your life, it requires to invest the first minutes of the day with your Savior. Enough said, you can find the whole 20 minutes of that spiel online. That was last week. And the last catalyst that will build an active, enduring faith is pivotal 
circumstances, pivotal circumstances in which you and I experience. These are life events that become disruptive. They become catalytic. They kind of throw us off. Sometimes they're stressful. Sometimes they're super joyous. I'll, like, I remember to this day where I was. It was like in the old church house at St. Mary Church when I was in high school. Uh, my, the volunteer who was serving us in, 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 uh, when I was in high school, his name was Danny. He just had a kid. And, and when he, he just had his kid, he said, um, he said, I'll never forget it because I'm like, I was thinking like, I'm just a high school punk. And he's like, you will never know how much you are loved until you see your own child. You will not see how much you are loved by God, your heavenly father, until you see your own child and see how much. So he was getting emotional of saying when he saw his firstborn born, like he realized how much he is loved by God by seeing his own child. And that stuck out to me just because I'm like, okay, that's kind of weird. I've never heard a guy really talk like that. And it just stuck out to me. To him, that was a pivotal circumstance that changed how he viewed how much he is loved. If we understood how much we are loved, if we understood how much we are worth, if we understood where our value comes from, it's not your career, it's not that person, it's not by your status, it's not by your finances, it's not by any of that. If we understood our value and our worth, I promise you, it changes everything. That was a pivotal circumstance for him. Maybe for some of us, a pivotal circumstance, a life event, is that call, is that person, is that conversation, is that diagnosis, is that breakup. We all experience those per pivotal circumstances, but our response to it can either drift us or build an active, enduring faith. The early Christians never saw tension between circumstances and their pursuit of God. The early Christians, like, I, I mean, if you just kind of if you just kind of dream for a second, St. Mark going to, to Egypt, we have some manuscripts, but if you kind of fill in the gaps, like, we'll see, like, why? Why are they speaking a foreign language which I can't understand? Why, God, have you allowed this to happen? Why have, well, what have I done to deserve this? He never, he never connected circumstances to the reality of God in his life. The, the early Christians never saw tension of why there is pain in this world and why is there a good God. They never connected the two. That is a foreign concept of why they connected. They never said, well, if God is good, then X, Y, Z should occur. The second that you and I say that, then we have taken the logic of God, the, the logic of the author of life, and shoved it into our, 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 our little brain and says, well, if God is good, then X, Y, Z should, should occur. Then we've made ourselves a deity. Just so you know, I, I, I mean, I, this, I don't want to bore you with this, but like, we know more of church history and Christian history besides the Gospels. So there is a Jewish historian by the name of Josephus. So Josephus was a, a Jewish historian, and he would record various things that he experienced with the disciples, with the early Christians, uh, and how the radical worldview of the way, which is Christianity, but then it was coded the way. And he would write down so many things he experienced in those who were following the way. And one thing he recorded was about an early Christian disciple, which some historians say he was related to Jesus himself. His name was St. James. So St. James, he, so Josephus writes down that he was a bishop of the city of Jerusalem, and then he was actually stoned to death. He was stoned to death. I mean, talk about a, a, a gruesome death. And something that St. James, a first eyewitness of Jesus, what he ended up saying about the hardships and pain that you and I go through, he says all of that is a test. All trials are a test. All hardships is a test. All hardships that you and I go through is a pop quiz. 
but it's how we respond to that quiz. He put it in this way, more, more eloquently, obviously, he said it this way. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, not if, but whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith is producing the fruit and virtue of perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Like St. James saying, it's not if, but whenever trials come, shift your optics, your lens of how you view the trial. Yes, vent it to God. We talked about that today in the, in the liturgy sermon. Yes, vent to God. Be open with him and, and, and say, why has you allowed this to occur? There's nothing wrong with that. That's part of an intimate, vulnerable, uh, vertical relationship here for us to have. But do that. But then, but then he's saying, the testing of your faith, it is producing something. It is producing perseverance. The story is still being written. There is the author of life working through it right now. It's producing perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. He's saying, listen, this trial which you're going through is a quiz. It's, it's something is it's being edified within you through this process. But you have to change your lens of how you view it. If you view it as circumstantial, your pursuit of God is circumstantial, then yes. Then your faith is going to be like, yeah, I don't believe in that anymore. That, then rightfully so, you will say that. But if we understand that pivotal circumstances in our life is there for our edification and to build us up, this changes everything. Maybe your pursuit of the author of life, maybe our pursuit of the author of life is collapsing because we do not connect how trials are there for my benefit. Maybe we are fading away from the source of life because we are unable to connect the two. When hardships come, do we eventually come down to the question of what, how is this edifying me? Or do we run away from that question? Or it's not even in our logic to ask that question. But St. James encourages us. You will be made complete. You will lack nothing if you have this lens of how you look at, uh, how you look at trials. And he, like, this is a first eyewitness, a relative to Jesus saying this. So he's speaking from personal experience of this. I saw this on Twitter. I, I liked it. A faith can't be trusted unless it's been tested. A faith can't be trusted unless it's been tested. With me? Third time's a drop. I like it. A faith can't be trusted unless it's been tested. Trust is not a but. And again, we talked about this one of these past five weeks. With all respect to all versions of a, a marriage ceremony. I cannot just say, I trust, I love, till death is part. I, it's more than words. It cannot be a reality unless it has been tested. You and I are tested in our pursuit of the author of life with the trials and hardships that you and I go through. But do we see it that way? Do we connect the two? That our hardships are there for our edification. I don't want to sound like a... Let me... Let me Jesus always loved to create artificial tension points. Jesus loved to create artificial tension points to, to, to give pop quizzes, to test to his early followers. He had a limited amount of time, okay? It wasn't a lot of time. But he always created these artificial tension points to equip them, to empower them. One example we talked about 
one of these weeks, everything's a blur to me right now. But one of the, in one of the weeks we talked about how the disciples said, uh, Jesus, okay, your sermon's been great. It's been fabulous. Great five-hour sermon. But, I mean, like the people are kind of tired, a little bit hungry. You know, can you, can you kind of snap your finger or do something to create some food here? What did Jesus say? He created a tension point. He said, mm, no, you do something about it. Can you, why don't you fix that problem? He created a tension point to empower them, for them to build the muscle of trust. He's building an active, enduring trust within them because Jesus only has a limited amount of time. So he's trying to build that within them. So he's saying, oh, why don't you create something? So, so the artificial tension point w was a, a little boy coming with his lunchbox. And he synergistically, I think that's a word, with synergy, works with God, works with Jesus to do something. Right? That's a word, right? Synergistically. There's synergy. I always just like synergy. I have more confidence saying the word synergy. But there's synergy between that boy and God. There's synergy between us and the author of life. But he's creating these tension points to see how will we respond. Today's gospel and today's liturgy. One of Jesus' closest friends dies. Jesus, the, the guy who you love, you know him, Lazarus. He's like, he's sick and he's about to die. And what does Jesus, Jesus say? Okay, okay, time out. I'll, I'll, I'll stop what I'm doing. I'll, I'll go fix this real quick. I'll make, him real, I'll make him better really quick. No. What did Jesus say? He says, no. Actually, this is going to be for your edification. This will be for you to build the muscle of trust. This is not to death. But all of this is to glorify who I am and who my father is. So he used this tension, this pivotal circumstance, to, for them to strengthen their trust in him. Parents, we teach our kids how to pray our Father. We teach our kids the creed, which is our mission statement as, as Orthodox Christians. We teach them, our Father, who art, we believe in one God, so forth and so on. We believe, and, you know, give them a nice little ribbon, trophy, good job, so forth and so on, right? We love it when they learn this stuff. I don't want to use the word useless, so I'm not saying that at all. It does not come, like, it, it only comes in handy when the pivotal circumstance and hardship comes their way. Them knowing the creed and knowing the Lord's prayer, for us to know these template model prayers and mission statement of what does it mean to be a follower of Christ and the Orthodox Church, come in handy when hardships come. Because then we go back to who, knowing who we are. Think about it. When we pray, your, when we pray, your will be done. It's easy when things are going great. It's easy for us at the end of the eighth for us to say, your will be done, your will be done on earth, just as it is in heaven. But imagine when hardship is, 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 is at your front door, and you're in the middle of crisis, and you're in the middle of so much stress and uncertainty. You know how hard it is then to pray? Your will be done. Thy will, not my will. On earth. You know what we say on earth? We're talking about like in the brokenness that is existing now in this temporal world. I want your will to be done in this temporal world right now. Just as your will is perfected in heaven, I want heaven to come to earth. So this, when we pray that, it's easy to pray when things are great. But now when things are tough, now it's a completely different dimension for then us now to pray, your will be done on earth. Your will be done. Or liturgically, when we say, manage my life as deemed fit. It's easy to pray it when things are well. But do we embrace praying that in pivotal circumstances? Okay, what makes the difference? What makes the difference between someone who says, um, you know what, this hardship 
is building me up, is building my marriage, is building, is building me up as a man, as a woman of God. What differentiates that as opposed to somebody to be like, man, what did I do to deserve this? See, it's easy to follow Jesus when things were nice and, and fun and games when I was young, but this is not for me. God would not have, if, he, if God was legit, he wouldn't have allowed this to happen. He wouldn't have allowed this person to die, so forth and so on. What makes the difference between conversion stories and de-conversion stories? Three things. What makes the difference is what we believe, who we listen to, and how we process it. What we believe. Again, we all get stuck on why does God allow bad things to happen? Rewind, rewind. You are not the first Christian. I am not the first follower of Jesus. Nobody in this room is. So what was the ideology, the mindset, the philosophy, the theology of the, the first followers of Jesus? How did, they, how did they connect the two? How did they connect hardships with their pursuit of Jesus? How did they connect the two? So, so don't get stuck on, the, I'm saying, you don't ignore the question. I want you to embrace it. But then connect it to the bigger picture of, every, of everything. Why does God allow bad things to happen? How did they embrace this tension in the first century? So ask yourself, what do you believe? And I say it all the time. What gives me confidence to put my trust and identity in the person of Jesus? If someone predicted, it's just historically, let me start historically. If someone predicted his own death and, and, and then overcame death, and then had breakfast the next day with his followers. And those followers who were originally skeptics ended up writing about what they experienced and made themselves look dumb in the story itself, in the Gospels. I'm all in to whatever Jesus said and did and who he is. I'm all in because of, of the integrity of that narrative and the integrity of that historical reality. Then that changes everything for me. So ask yourself, what do you believe? Second question you need to ask yourself is, who do we listen to? Who do we listen to? If you understand who you are and you understand your identity and you understand whose you are, then, then you're going to be more intentional about what you listen to. What you listen to. Let me give you an example of this. When Jesus saw a blind man and he was, it was, it was blind from birth and everyone's like kind of talking, I wonder what Jesus is going to do. Is he going to heal him? You know what everyone else was thinking when they saw a hardship in someone else? You know what they ended up saying? They were asking, they were asking, they were asking Jesus, who sinned? Like, you know, like, did he, did, did this boy do something, did this man do something wrong when he was a kid? Is that why he became blind? Or like, did his parents do something wrong? What made him, like, go blind? Jesus would tell him this, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Jesus is telling them, it, it, it's not about what he did or did not do. It's, it's not about that at all. But I'm, I, I, it, it, you're losing sight of, of the whole agenda of what I'm trying to do. But through this pain, through this flaw, through this, through this shortcoming, through this sickness, the works of God will be revealed. Ask yourself, who do you listen to? And, and that includes YouTube videos, podcasts. Ask yourself, what do you listen to that brings edification? Because this will make the difference of you either building your active, enduring faith or make you drift. And the second, third, the third thing is how you process it. So what, what do you believe, who do you listen to, and how do you process it? And I want to leave you with this verse. Jesus said this. Jesus said this in the most emotional setting as he's sitting with his disciples on his last evening with them before his crucifixion. And he tells them this. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have wholeness, peace, shalom. 
In the world, I promise you, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So he's basically telling him, I want you to process this. In me is wholeness, is the fullness of life, is peace. I promise you, hardships and tribulations are not going anywhere. Just because you're all in with me does not mean hardships are going anywhere. And if you don't believe me, see what will happen tomorrow, Good Friday. So Jesus tells them, I promise you, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have transcended hardships. I have overcome the world in order for you to overcome your hardship. But it requires you to be in me. Now, when we pray liturgically in our ancient faith, O King of Peace, grant us your peace. Establish for us your peace. Now it has a new meaning. It's not just peace theoretically. It's in the person of peace, the King of Peace. That's the end of our series. And I pray, I pray, I pray. Regardless of if you're all in, you're one foot in, you're zero feet in, and you're questioning faith altogether, you're debating if you want to give Jesus another shot, you're listening to this and you don't know if, 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 if you really want to take another step back in the church, wherever you might be, ask yourself, what, where is my trust in? And if I want to give Jesus another shot, Maybe I can't just press that button. Maybe I need to build that muscle to build an active, enduring faith. Because if he overcame the world, I know that through him and in him, I'm able to overcome my hardships. Let's stand for a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Lord, you guaranteed us that we will have hardships and tribulations in this world. But you have motivated us and cheered us on for us to be of good cheer because you have overcome the world. Lord, I pray that we can hold on to you, you being the source of peace. And for our faith not to be holding on to circumstances. For our faith not to be holding on when things are great financially or things are great in the family or things are great with health but for our trust in you to transcend any temporal circumstance. But as pivotal circumstances come, I pray that we can have the lens of looking at these hardships and ask ourselves, where is there edification in this hardship? Lord, give us this boldness to see the way you see. Through the prayers of St. Paul the Apostle and all your saints, Lord, hear us as we pray thankfully, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you, guys. Have a great week. Next week, we start a new series on parenting.